So welcome everybody to this event this afternoon where we explore behavioral science in the context of great uncertainty. My name is Julia Black. I'm LSE Strategic Director of Innovation and a Professor of the Law of Law here at the LSE. This is part of the LSE's COVID-19 response series of events. You'll have seen the Twitter hashtag is LSE COVID-19. Uh, we're operating on our new normal, so we're being participating through Zoom today and we're being live streamed on Facebook. And then after the event, it should be available to download as a podcast um, for you to go back to or to share with anybody uh, who you think might be interested. I think we've got an enormous audience um, online and um, it's my delight to get started. So I'm delighted to welcome our panel today. Um, I'll start with Nick. Nick Chater is Professor of Behavioural Science at the University of Warwick and he's also on the advisory board to the Behavioural Insights team. Turning next to Ulrika Hahn, who is Professor of Psychological Science at Birkbeck College, and she has been at the forefront of attempts to reconfigure behavioural sciences to deal with COVID-19. Moving to Liam, Liam Delaney is Professor of Behavioural Science at University College Dublin, and has been advising the Irish government on its response to COVID-19. And I'm delighted to say he's going to be joining the LSE as head of the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Sciences um, at the next academic year. Moving then to Grace, Grace Lorden is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Sciences, and she's head of a new initiative called the Inclusion Initiative here at the LSE. And then last but no, by no means least, of course, is Professor Paul Dolan, who's Professor of Behavioural Science at the LSE and current head of our Department of Psychological and Behavioural Sciences and Director of our, e, our Executive Masters in Behavioural Science and author of Sunday Times bestselling book, Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. Get that plug in there. So good afternoon, everybody. So we've got what I hope will be quite a lively panel discussion for about 50 minutes or so. I will be asking the panelists different questions and then we'll be opening it up for Q&A. So if you are, if you do want to pose a question for those who are watching um, and participating in Zoom, then you'll please can use a Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. And then questions will come in to me as chair and I'll pose as many of them as I can to, to our panelists this afternoon. And if you could just let us know your name and affiliation uh, when you write your question, that'd be very helpful. And obviously we're very keen to hear from our students, alumni and our incoming students, um, but obviously everybody is welcome uh, to pose questions. Uh, as you wish. So let's let's get started. Um, Nick, if I could turn to you first, what has the current crisis confirmed for you or surprised you about human behaviour? Just, just right. So it's a very interesting question. I think there's there are two things I wanted to, to highlight. Um, one is about the way we interpret ambiguous situations. And this is something I sort of half know or half believe, but I've really felt um, just how powerful this is now. So when we're given ambiguous information, we tend to try to impose a, a structure or a narrative or a, uh, a pattern on that ambiguity. And when, when, it's ambigu when the information is ambiguous, of course, there are several possible patterns until, it's, until there's enough information that one pattern is clearly the best one. And I think one thing that's very basic to how our brains work is that they're really, really bad at recognizing when there are two or three different possibilities or more. We tend to think, I don't know, I can't see any pattern. I don't know what's going on. Ah, now, now I do. Now I see the pattern. It's this. Now, so for example, uh, if I show you a, a picture that might be a duck or a rabbit, um, you might see it as a duck. 
And if I say, actually, you can see it another way. If you look at it long enough, you might see it as a rabbit, or you might start off seeing it as a rabbit and eventually see it as a duck. But you'll very, very rarely spontaneously notice it has both interpretations. And in fact, it's very hard to see both interpretations at once. But you can't do that. You can see one interpretation or the other. Now, the thing is, I think this is very relevant for things like the, the pandemic. So looking at the early stages of our personal responses and government response to the pandemic, um, the interpretation of a very ambiguous set of, inf- piece, set of pieces of information coming out of China, it could, you could have multiple interpretations of what's going on. You can think, I know what this is. This is a bit like SARS or MERS or one of these things I've dimly heard of. It sounded pretty scary, but it sort of went away. It's another one of them. Or you might think, Ah, the flu. I know what this is. It's a bit like the flu. We know what flus are. We know how they work. and We know how to deal with them. Or you might think um, that this is something uh, completely different. So with the flu, you might think, well, that just has to let flow through the community. We can't do anything about it. Um, On the other hand, you might think, no, no, this is more like the the world is on fire or it's starting to go on fire and we must dampen it down. We've got to do absolutely everything we can because if we don't, we're going to be engulfed. Now, I'm not saying anything about which of those metaphors is the right metaphor, but the, th- the way we're all, we all, have all reacted, I think, uh, is quite well explained by assuming that we've got one metaphor in mind and not any others. We just can't see any others. So, for example, um, if you happen to think it's a bit like the flu or, or you think um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's just going to disappear because these, these distant, scary-sounding diseases normally do, then you're not, as a policymaker, going to think, well, just on the safe side, let's order some PPE or let's try and build up some testing facility with this. Now we've sequenced this virus. Let's, you know, let's try and build up, build up enormous uh, capacity to test for it. Just in case, just in case I'm wrong, because that's very hard for us to conceive of. We have the model of the world. We think that's the right model. And we, as it were, make our response based on the fact that, that model is right. And what, what we find extremely difficult to do is to hold the, in our minds the possibility that Actually, there are several possibilities here, and we don't know which is right. And I, I, I'm a victim uh, of this as, as much as we all are. But I think that that's struck me especially. The other thing, which is much briefer to state, is that, and, and this has surprised me, I think, is that um, the astonishing ability of people to change their social contract incredibly rapidly. Um, I mean, it really is just amazing, not just in Britain, that, that the world, you know, large practices of the entire world have completely changed how they live for periods of a couple of months it would have seemed inconceivable. And I suspect for many policymakers, it simply did seem inconceivable. So one reason not to consider lockdown was, well, that's just in- completely impossible. No one will ever stand for that. Uh, I think it's just amazing to me that we, people have not only done it, but they've done it, at least in many cases, um, they've even supported the policy, um, even though clearly for many people it's, it's enormously economically difficult, enormously difficult in all kinds of ways. Um, amazingly, public support is really high for the lockdown. That's, that's a surprise to me. Excellent. Um, so, Liam, I wonder if you had any thoughts or reactions, uh, both to the question, but also possibly to Nick's comments there. Um, it probably sound cheap to say that I wasn't actually too surprised by the fact that you had high high degrees of adherence. Um, I think I think particularly the social psychologists have had a good innings in this in this one. So, people like John Drury, Stephen uh, Reicher, people like that, who I think were saying from the start that in a condition like this where, and maybe speaks to Nick's point about the metaphor, once people start to conceive of this as a, an urgent issue with a need for collective action, that it was triggering a lot of things that actually do enable us to cooperate. And I think the only missing link from that, it can't just be the cooperative instinct alone. It needed to be backed by economic resources to ensure that people could self-isolate and things like that when needed, and which is something that's going to be relevant going forward as well. But I think once you had those in place, 
you wouldn't have expected maybe 100% adherence, but, uh, but I think uh, what folks like that were saying from the start was that if the communication was very consistent and clear, um, that you would actually get quite a lot of adherence because of the nature of the threat and, and the sort of instincts that kick in when you get a threat like that. And, and certainly in Ireland from, from the start, you were seeing huge levels of public support, uh, often the public being more more willing to impose restrictions than the government itself, to be honest. And that's yeah. all the way through. And I think that's happening in other countries as well. So I think what it's telling us is that when you see a big collective threat, there is a, provided there's a coordination mechanism of government, that people will actually cooperate with one another and they will sustain things that, like Nick said, we may have considered inconceivable before the threat emerges. But, but I think it's something we should carry forward to future ones, that there is quite a lot of things that people are willing to do for sustained periods if they feel it's in a, a sort of collective purpose. Yeah, and that collective action. Um, so, Grace, I was wondering if you had any any thoughts on this, either on the compliance or or the duck-rabbit problem. You know, it looked like a we acted on the base. It might have been a, a, a duck-like flu and instead of a rabbit-like SARS or just that issue about interpretation as well as behaviours. I think what's fascinated me about behaviours is um, herding. So even before Boris Johnson announced that we were going to lock down in Britain within businesses, employees were putting pressures on their employers. And I know students at the LSE were calling for the LSE to close. And around, you know, around the UK was the same thing. And this idea that the beliefs that were held by the people actually drove the policy response in the uh-huh. UK and, and, and the government followed that rather than it being this hard line that the government had taken because I think what Nick has said is that they, they were actually going in, in, in a different direction and pivoted quite fast so it shows to me actually the power of grassroots and we see that even coming now from the phase out of the lockdown I know Google has announced their employees don't need to go back till 2021 and a lot of other companies are actually saying we're going to wait so regardless of what the government say we're going to wait. And that seems to be employees driving their employers that are driving the government, which has been quite interesting to see as a behavioural scientist. No, absolutely. Ulrika, did you have any thoughts on this issue, any of these issues here? Yeah, yeah, I thought the the duck rabbit thing seemed very insightful to me because uh, one of the things that I've wondered about most, that that I've been most surprised at, is the extent to which uh, this crisis has revealed that people can look at basically the same body of evidence and draw such radically different conclusions. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I, 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 uh, in my normal research work, I've spent the last five years thinking about testimony and beliefs and social networks and communication and thought about things like polarization and uh, really concerned myself with how rational actors can come to believe um, opposing things even when they're entirely accuracy motivated. But I was still kind of underprepared for the extent to which people I know who I think are like me, whose expertise and judgment I greatly value, still come to completely different conclusions from me. And and I I think the metaphor thing is part of that. What what I've been thinking also is that I think I underappreciated, as somebody who's spent basically a career thinking about thinking, I underappreciated the extent to which our sort of reasoning and uh, and thoughts are directed and guided by wider faculties for judgment and moral intuitions and emotions and sort of notions of self that we have not not in the sense of sort of alternative roots as is sort of popular in the literature mm-hmm. but as as kind of faculties that shape the directions in which our thoughts proceed mm-hmm. push us to start reasoning in 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 one direction over another yeah 
Interesting. Paul, just turning to you um, on this question of, of thinking about what has the current crisis confirmed for you or surprised you about human, human behaviour, picking up some of those threads, perhaps? Yeah, I just wanted to reflect. I mean, what Nick said in his opening uh, salvo, those two things are highly consistent with each other, right? I mean, in the sense mm. that we're, first of all, grappling around in a world of uncertainty and we don't like it. We want our lives and the world to cohere. Um, and then we get an instruction to do something. And that gives us the order that we so much craved. And so I suppose I was initially surprised at the degree to which people were around the world, it seems, willing by and large to kind of sacrifice huge freedoms, but actually entirely consistent with the idea that they were doing that because there was some, there was at least now some certainty. Um, and yeah. all those, all those different competing metaphors were now resolved for me. Um, and, 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 and it's, and it's interesting, of course, as we now start to ease lockdown, that yeah. there's some ambiguity about now what we should do. We should stay at home and also go to work. So, you know, it, it, it sort of becomes confusing and we really don't like that. Yeah, and I think that's something we can probably pick up actually in the course of the discussion that we were we were given that certainty of what to do. We we're clinging to that, and as Grace said, that kind of power of the grassroots. People wanting to be more conservative, perhaps, than the government might now want us to be, but we can't now cope with this slight shift and change in message because we've been given a, a particular pattern. Perhaps we can pick that up as we as we continue on. But I think um, one of the interesting things as well, I think, in this in this crisis is, I suppose, is how we reflect on on the study of behaviours themselves. And Enrique, I know you've been thinking about this quite a lot recently. So what has the current crisis confirmed for you or surprised you about behavioural science? Um, so I, I expected a sort of flood of new research because I expected that yeah. people want to engage and, and help uh, with what's the big issue. And that expectation has been met. I mean, I think the behavioral science flood hasn't been quite as stupendous as the one that we've seen in the medical domain. But as of today, there are over 200 preprints on SciArchive. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that's been generated in a, in a very short period of time. I think I also expected that it would be harder to uh, get all this energy toward innovation brought together in a way that makes it sort of maximally effective and bundles it. Uh, and I think slightly disappointingly that expectation too has been been met. So I think at the moment we probably see a fair bit of reduplication uh, on every level from similar studies through to, you know, uh, multiple infographics on face touching or social distancing um, with, and I think some redundancy is good, but there's, there's maybe a little bit more of that uh, then would be strictly useful. I think there have been some amazing large-scale collaborations in ways that I've never seen, you know, multiple international institutions linked up, testing literally hundreds of thousands of, of participants. But I still get the sense that at the moment, both at the individual and the institutional levels, uh, there's a lot of synergies being missed because results aren't really linked up. And I think that's hard and it, it, it takes time. It's, it's much easier to just slap out another research info hub or another sort of self-contained uh, database than it is to sort of foster new coordination and collaboration. But it does leave me, for example, with concerns about who's reading all this stuff that we're producing. 
And I think related to that, one of the things that's also surprised me is that we haven't seen more systematic reviews of past research that tried to connect uh, what we thought we knew and did before with what's happening now. So, so right at the beginning of the crisis, there was, for example, uh, quite a high profile uh, systematic review in The Lancet that looked at what tried to draw together what we know about the effects of uh, quarantine on, on mental well-being. And I sort of expected that there would be a flurry of, of that kind of work that we could all draw on and, and, and help to use to sort of guide efforts. But I, I'm, I'm, not really, I'm not really seeing that. Mm. Um, and the other thing I'm a little bit surprised about, I think, is, is it seems to me from just surveying this fairly informally that m a, quite a large proportion of the research that has been conducted in the behavioral sciences is, is effectively survey research, asking people about yeah. things one way or the other. And I think that's, that's obviously of practical use now, and it's important. But it is also an arena where science competes with other, you know, possibly more well-resourced organizations like polling organizations who yeah. have access to representative samples. So I think that's an interesting and surprising choice. Um, but I think the thing that's kind of most surprised me and, and also slightly disappointed me is, is how robust, at least at this point in time, some of the sort of structural barriers that exist uh -huh. within our fields uh, seem to be. So I, I, I would have hoped that we would do a better job of moving beyond the sort of theoretical frameworks or disciplines or method divides that we can find across the spectrum of people studying uh, human behavior. Uh, I don't really see the barriers sort of falling in any massive way between cognitive psychologists, social psychologists, public health people, economists, health psychology practitioners, uh, in a way that to the extent that would seem useful. And I would have sort of hoped that people's need to sort of own things like processes and ideas and things might, might be uh, slightly a bit more attenuated than maybe we're seeing, given that even the most altruistic contributions at the moment ultimately come directly back to benefit us because we're all affected by the, by the pandemic. So I, I think that's, there's an area there where I think people could still learn to just just become more inclusive and 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 realize how important it is at this point in time also to hand things off to other people and include other people in the things we're doing um and that this is yeah. a different world okay so a number of different thoughts there and obviously i think for it's quite important for us to be talking about this as academics to be thinking well from the outside world's point of view all these different disciplinary interdisciplinary boundaries mean nothing they're, they're, they're actually entirely irrelevant um so so how should we be thinking to, but one of the, some of the things you picked up there in terms of well is is who's kind of reading this stuff and and what what impact are we managing to make how are we managing to mobilize behavioral science you know effectively uh, to inform not just policymakers but but people more generally about what we can really be drawing from that. So, just wondering, just don't don't want to ask this of every panel member in the interest of time, but just if any of you had any thoughts about how we could really be mobilising behavioural science now to really be informing policymaking, but also just help people as they work through these uncertainties themselves as individuals or businesses or social movements, etc. Just wave wave at me uh, if you want to come in. Nick. So I, mean, I think one thing that I mean, Ulrika and I have talked a lot about this, um, that we, we, we think is potentially exciting is to have 
the possibility of much more very rapid open um, discussion and open publication. So we, we, we're in a world where academics are used to spending quite a long time writing a fairly polished paper and then and sending it off to review and it finally trundles out in a few months' time or years. But that is obviously not appropriate now. But also full papers may not be appropriate. And actually, yeah. it may be much more important for us to have very short, very snappy interchanges um, about particular policy issues and, and just to think through as, as interdisciplinary groups, you know, what do we think should be done about X, Y, or Z? Because it's basically really sort of a, a huge stream of really concrete policy challenges and if we think we have anything to contribute to those, then they're not going to come to us. Or if they are, it's going to be through such a convoluted process. It's probably better for us to, to get our thoughts together um, and just push them out there. Now, of course, again, there's still the who's, who's reading any of this stuff point, And that's tricky, I think. So we need to do this. If we do it at all in a form that is, is, is accessible and open and also transparent to other academics and, and other people involved with policy. So they look at it and think, well, where's this? What's the basis for any of this? Because obviously we can all... We are all cheerfully able to pontificate uh, on things inside and outside our competence. Um, so I, th- I think just thinking about how to have a forum, the forums that work better in that regard, is something that is, I think, quite a challenge and, and, and probably we haven't collectively solved it. The only other tiny thing is, um, obviously, any, at any time you're, you're worried about a policy issue, you clearly have to be um, interdisciplinary because the, the recommendation that might seem behaviorally very sensible might, from some medical point of view or some economic point of view, be completely hopeless. And it's only, or indeed, you might be just illegal. Um, so you might just be discriminating against people in a way that you just, it's, it's not legally possible. So you know, it's just sort of a hopeless um, starting point to be starting within a particular discipline. Say, so, you know, what do we behavioral scientists think about policy X? It's just the wrong question, really. And so we, we can't just be talking to each other. We have to be engaging much more broadly if we're going to be useful to policy. And I think there's... Yeah. I think there's also a lot of debates going on uh, around what behavioral science is and the different disciplines and how they interact with one another. So if you looked at Sage B, you have you know really some of the top social psychologists, some of the top health psychology people, behavioral change folks, uh, people from the behavioral insights team. And I was looking at it, and they're doing a, you know very solid work. But I think there was confusion as it started coming into the public, uh, and we need to reflect on this. What is this broad field? What is its status as a, as a trusted source of expertise in a time of a crisis? And I, I actually think the, the the composition of that group was was great in terms of the people that were on it, but the way that that hit the public was was not optimal at all uh, in the UK. And I think it left a lot of people confused as to who behavioural scientists are, what they what they what they can do, and we've a lot of work I think between us as different fields to to repair that. To be honest. Okay, so that's something we can also pick up, I think, as we as we go through. And I've got a number of questions coming in, uh, which we can turn to in perhaps a little bit more in the Q&A in terms of reproducibility, replicability, challenges for behavioural sciences. So, you know, should we really be offering sort of fast science to policymakers uh, without having gone through that appropriate testing? But obviously then you miss the timeliness. So, so something to reflect on, I think, as we come back into the Q&A. But a lot of questions also coming in, uh, Grace, about uncertainty itself obviously a theme that we've opened with um, and the main theme for today but what are some of the particular challenges of of uncertainty for us as individuals and often having to make decisions where we're having to make these trade-offs all the time I mean it's um, so so how could we what are those main challenges how could we be thinking about them how to handle them 
Um, so speaking um, specifically about decision-making, I'm an economist. So when we think about people being rational, those of you who aren't economists, we think about folks sitting down, deliberating, weighing up benefits and risk in a way that's scarily accurate, right, to come to, co to come to the right decision. And you can imagine that the government are doing that when they're thinking about when we should use lockdown and companies are doing that, whether they should pivot. And I'm doing that when thinking about whether I should go through with the house that I'm planning to buy. So there's lots of us making decisions in this, in this big time of uncertainty. Um, and I think that there's kind of two things that are really special about this time. So firstly, when we're making decisions like the government are making decisions, company making strategic decisions, me making my house decision, the costs and benefits stream very, very far into the future. So they become very, very difficult to quantify. And in this type of uncertainty that we haven't experienced before, we have own probability. There isn't really this puzzle that can be solved in a way that economists like to solve puzzles. And I think for people who are skeptics of behavioral science, um, it's worth emphasizing that while behavioral science will show you lots of different biases, heuristics, gut feelings in a number of scenarios, the one scenario that I'm pretty sure it sticks is when we're facing decision-making under uncertainty, when information is lacking and things seem a bit unclear. So I think thinking about decision-making from a behavioral science perspective has never been more relevant. Um, and things might become clear in the second, third and fourth pandemic, that doesn't really help us now. So I guess when I reflect on the type of decision-making that's being made, if you think about what can help, I think that rather than trying to optimize anything or think that there's one decision, folks should co uh, concentrate on coping. And what that basically means is that you make the best decision possible drawing on the data that's available now um, and seek a better status quo than where you are now, but you're constantly updating. So this becomes iterative, right? So you can see the governments are saying that we're making a decision, but if things go wrong, we're going to scale back. And I think that's all that you can actually do under uncertainty. I think as Nick pointed out, which is really relevant, that relies on us then having a good idea about when to scale back or what good looks like. So what does good evidence look like? And that's something that you have to be questioning and probably putting up before the decision is actually made. I do think that we have to recognize as people, firms and the government that a coping strategy is okay. And saying that we're going to backtrack when things aren't going wrong is absolutely fine because this will come with scenario planning. And I've been involved with some scenario planning where people try to think of infinite scenarios. And I think that's a really bad idea. I think thinking about the one or two things that are really, really important and what would need to happen for it to derail your decision um, is probably the best way to go because then you're iterating all the time about your scenario planning and, and uh, your scenario planning and your decision making. I do want to flag that recognizing in this particular situation the costs and benefits that are written down by any government or firm are dependent on how people actually behave. And I think the one thing that will govern behavior in this particular scenario is what people actually believe about the COVID crisis. And what Lurika has said is absolutely relevant. Different people who seem a lot like me are thinking very, very different things. So what does that actually mean about actions? And I think the one thing behavioral scientists have been very bad at is gathering data on beliefs and actually showing how they've been updating in the process and how they fed our decision making. Um, and kind of thinking about Paul's work on narratives, I think it's been very stark to me the role of narratives in decision making in, in, in this. And we should recognize that as planners in our own decision making. But also when we're trying to influence people, storytelling works. People don't want to go and read a big database of behavioral science literature. We have ego and think that they will, but they don't. They want the messages very, very succinctly made. And they want us talking about each other's research in a way that's scrutiny. Um, 
And I think Luika also touched on this point, but I think decision-making now has to be collaborative. The idea that one or two people who are the same, have the same background, have the right answer is, is, is quite bonkers to me. I think if you bring in diversity of thought, you also circumvent the availability bias. When I talk to medics, they talk to me about mortality. When I talk to economists, they talk to me about the economy. And when I talk to education specialists, they talk to me about lost schooling. And I'm sure some happiness economists may even talk to me about happiness that's actually being lost. And we all have to talk together if we're really going to understand what these costs and benefits are. Um, and I think in the same way that decision making actually would benefit from collaboration, also putting things out for scrutiny and being open to changing our mind as, as, as people who are actually putting ideas out there, as well as expecting policymakers to change their mind. So when I kind of think about this time in, in, in the country, I think about this is time for the leaders of countries and businesses who actually listen, who are decisive, but who will actually go backwards if necessary. And I think that last part is super, is super important, this kind of idea that we're, we're, we're in unknown territory and decision-making has to be a, a grid search. Yeah, just so, so a lot there, I mean, a lot there in terms of scaling back, I suppose, reducing the, uh, reducing the risks of um, regret, I suppose, from making the wrong decision in situations of uncertainty, the ability to pivot and backtrack, the idea of in the kind of financial world is called reverse stress testing. What would it take to actually make us all fall over? Uh, I'm thinking about putting that. I am, I am about one. collaboration around that. So, sorry. Okay, I was, I just one. Okay. I, just I, one, I, really I, small. Very small. And I do think if anyone gives you certainty over their recommendation, they should be discounted. <laughs> I, I really think this, there's not one down lockdown day. There's not one solution. They should be discounted from the debate. That's my, my controversial <laughs> point of today. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Paul, I'm going to turn to you uh, first, just uh, some thoughts and reflections on this question, which is obviously enormous. Yeah, thank you. The simplest thing to say is I just agree with everything that's just been said by Dr. Lorden. Um, I mean, particularly, I think, I mean, I, I, the, the range of perspectives that ought to be brought to bear into the decision-making process is absolutely critical. Having trained as an economist, I kind of feel that um, it's remarkable how absent they've been in the discussions around, or at least it appears to me, um, around SAGE. I don't think there's anyone who is an economist on SAGE. Um, I may be mistaken. Um, but to think yeah. directly about the opportunity costs of every decision, weighing up insofar as it's at all possible, all of the possible consequences of what we decide to do, feels to be to have been absent to some large extent during the course of this conversation. And I think now is an opportunity for us to have a grown-up conversation with each other and with the public about these kinds of trade-offs, um, because that's what we're doing. I mean, we're necessarily going to be making these kinds of trade-offs over the next God knows how long. And that is really where I want to come to the point about uncertainty, because the biggest uncertainty we're facing, I think, at the moment is when we might find a vaccine or a treatment. Mm. And, and that really, that, I mean, that is uncertainty in the pure Knightian sense. I mean, there are no probabilities that can be attached really to these, to these, to these outcomes. And that really, does, that really does start reframing and recasting what we think we ought to be doing. And, and it's interesting that the narrative that we're told, I don't know to what extent this, this is true, is that, you know, we've got to wait about a year. You know, that just sort of seems to be what yeah. people have been. Now, I have no idea whether that's true or not. It could be completely unfounded faith in our ability to get a vaccine. And if, if it's the case that it's a decade or never, 
then some of what we might decide to do in response to COVID-19 might change, and particularly people's beliefs about what, what, what ought to be done. And I'm particularly pleased that Grace mentioned that too, because we're actually doing a study at the moment where we are looking at whether people update the sorts of stories that they tell about you know, the, the um, impact of COVID-19 based upon fresh evidence and information. Um, and we can suspect that that, that will be quite um, slow. But the biggest uncertainty, as I say, I think is around vaccination and around treatment. And it just it just recasts everything. And I'd, and I'd like to think about the conversations and the narratives and therefore the policy implications that might follow if we were to scenario plan, to use the language races use, different timings of which we find a vaccination. Because cause that, mm. that seems to me to be the critical uncertainty at the moment. Yeah. I think Liam... Do you have any um, thoughts on, on this? And just again, to, to agree with Grace that uh, this issue of how we bring different disciplinary perspectives together, I mean, it's a challenge uh, at the best of times. Uh, I mean, I've always lived between economics and psychology, and even just to keep any coherence in your understanding of two disciplines is hard. So who is the person that actually has a sort of expert understanding of, of all of the disciplines and all of the administrative issues of how you manufacture tests and all of these types of things. So these synthesizing intelligences and how you create environments. I, I think it's something for me coming into the LSE made me think again about how we train people from the very start of their career uh, to learn their own discipline and also learn how to work with other disciplines and emerge into trans disciplines that uh, synthesize uh, knowledge together. But I mean, we've got issues of the, the labor market, the development of testing technologies, epidemiological models, and you've got all of this discussion about, you know, epistemic, tr epistemic trespass. You know, don't talk about disciplines where you're not an expert, which is fair enough. But there's no discipline that cannot, there's no discipline that can make recommendations without an understanding of what's coming from the others. So you've got, on the one hand, you don't want to say anything about a discipline where you're not an expert. But on the other hand, you rely on information from those disciplines before you can say anything meaningful in, in, in your own one. And I think that's the fundamental problem of uncertainty. You, you want to make a recommendation as a labor market economist, but you're terrified that you might get the science of testing wrong. You might want to say something about the labor market if you're an epidemiologist. But do you really know about, you know, which, which groups are going to be more affected by which types of policies? And so these rare intelligences that are able to synthesize those information sensibly and these structures that, that do a good job at synthesizing those are, are, are really our best hope uh, uh, to, to put some sort of meaning on this uncertainty. Um, and I think that would be a huge part of the process of learning from this is what we did right and what we did wrong in terms of, in terms of that synthesis job. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Nick or Ulrika, do either of you have any, anything to add on this, on this question? Obviously we'll come back and explore it in some aspects of the Q and A. I've got a lot of questions I, coming in, but yeah. I think the only thing that I have to add is that I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it seems pretty apparent to me that um, one of the things that's that's already starting to happen and that will happen too is that what will be brought into this uh, to this process of of bringing together and mediating between people in a way that we've never seen before um, is also various machine mediated techniques, right? Natural language processing, the, the the kind of databases that people are starting to build now for COVID research. Are, are trying to draw on sophisticated NLP processing to, to you know, generate document recommender systems or to generate, you know, abilities for basic synthesis of text and things like that. So I think we're going to also be finding us in a new place 
with respect to the the tools that we draw on for trying to uh, uh, cope with large and very diverse and heterogeneous bodies of knowledge. Yeah, and I've got a number of questions also coming in on some of the trade-offs that, that are needing to be made and, and therefore needing to draw on those different bodies of knowledge. One which I will, which um, a number of people are asking, needless to say, is well, what in in this lockdown, given the economic cost, how are we going to trade off the costs of saving how many lives versus the economic cost of the lockdown, which is obviously a key issue. So we'll come back to that, which I think you probably, I'm just giving you long notice of this. Some of these questions, the advantages, I can see them coming in. So I'm just alerting the panel to that, that that won't be coming in. And I can, um, I want to make sure we leave time for that. But I think we've also obviously got the, 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 the current situation that everybody is, is dealing with. And um, it doesn't look, as we look forward, um, you know, the next 12 months are, you know, are pretty uncertain, but it looks as if we will still have, you know, some kind of changes. We won't, certainly we won't be back to our pre-COVID, you know, uh, behaviours uh, within the next year or so. So, Liam, I wonder if you could reflect for us um, on what you think some of the main behavioural challenges will be over the next 12 months or so. So, excuse me. So, yes, I mean, it's obviously going to depend on the the behavior of the virus itself and the development of technologies. And as we as we've said, some of this is uncertain. Uh, It'll somewhat depend on the capacity of our administrative systems to roll out, test, trace uh, and isolate. And, you know, if if we did manage to do that at scale in a way that stamped out the, the virus, we would still have. I mean, in any scenario, you're going to have. Um, a need for people to maintain things like hand washing, elements of physical distancing. You're going to develop, again, even in optimistic scenarios where we manage to do this, you're going to have issues like scarring effects of unemployment, which I think are, are storing up very big uh, issues. Uh, and I think how our benefit system, how our social security system reacts to that. I'm already hearing very worrying noises around, I think, what were really poor policies after the last recession around conditionality of welfare um, that I think would be would be a real mistake uh, as a response as a response to this. I, I would say in a case where testing, tracing, and isolation strategies are being are being rolled up um, again, it goes back to interdisciplinary perspectives. I mean, these are technological uh, medical um, um, innovations with a whole range of administrative and manufacturing expertise needed to to do them. I think from the behavioural perspective, they are also human beings communicating to one another. Uh, and no matter what happens in that, we're going to have issues of how uh, things like digital apps, uh, things like uh, large-scale testing are, are communicated to people, whether people trust the message. And we're also going to have people that are going to have very much different capacities to comply with what's being asked of them. I think as someone coming to LSE, if I needed to isolate for two weeks, I'm pretty sure my employer would support me in doing so. Uh, and I give one concrete example, and I'm sure you're seeing something similar in the UK. We're seeing meat processing plants, for example, as being one place where this is starting to spread and you kind of put yourself in the position of somebody who's working on a relatively low flat salary, maybe making up your rent by doing piecework uh, and overtime and things like that. And you have faced a decision to hit the button on the app, which could mean you have to isolate for two weeks. Your, your, your workmates may have to do so also your housemates have to do so also. And so in the absence of very trustworthy communication that the government is actually with you on this, or your employer is actually with you on this. Um, you know, communication and, and, and those types of things itself are, are spitting into the wind, frankly. These, these need to be very well-communicated messages 
backed up by resources. And, and, and the moment I see that's being a challenge, that if that isn't done right, and no matter how well you get the technology, you, you're losing this sort of collective, uh, you, you're losing that collective endeavor. And I also would say sometimes there's a view in the media discussion of behavioral science that we're sort of the folks that don't focus on real economic constraints and things like that. And I really reject that. I mean, I think whether you look at behavioral economics or you look at the health, health psychology, behavior change models, at their heart, they have economic constraints and they look at how people respond to those economic constraints. They're not, by presumption, just looking at things like communication and so on and so forth. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that because I, I think it's, it's, you know, well-designed communication that's consistent and clear and also well sort of studied models that look at folks that are at particular risk and ensuring that there's a combination of communication and real economic resources that allow them to comply. No, absolutely. Um, so a number of different issues there to pick up on, but around issues of, of compliance, not just with lockdown norms, but as you say, with the, the use of different, different technological um, apps, etc. one may need to be able to use with different trade-offs people are having to make. Nick, I wonder if you've got any um, thoughts on this one, on your perspective on the, these main behavioural challenges over the next year or so. Well, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, I completely agree with the points Liam's made. Um, another completely different issue is how we're going to manage with, um, for many people, being in, having to deal with enforced social, iso- social isolation, um, not just social distancing. Um, so, I mean, clearly one issue is just how do we, how do we get on with all our interactions over Zoom? Um, you know, but that, I think that's a fairly marginal issue, really. I mean, I think we can, we can manage if we have the, the people to talk to and the technology, you know, that's sort of, we're sort of 50% of the way there through the problem. But there'll be a lot of people who are really not in that position and they don't have those connect, connect, that connectivity and they rely a lot on face-to-face interaction um, with friends or family members who themselves might be uh, vulnerable. And I mean, it really is an incredibly difficult challenge to go through what will be economically straightened circumstances uh, with all kinds of health concerns in a situation where you're much more socially isolated than normal. Um, and that, I mean, that is it's just enormously challenging. I don't have any solutions for it, but it does feel like a, a, a gigantic problem, which is sort of inevitably going to be very hard to spot because the people who are suffering are the people who are just, you know, are disconnected from um, the rest of society. So it seems to me, you know, it's, 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 it's one thing to go through that for a few weeks and it's bad enough, but we're going to be dealing with this kind of problem for a very long time. So we have to really think hard as a, as a, uh, as a society and, and from the point of view of government about how to be uh, connecting as much as possible with people who are likely to become disconnected. Yes, no, a very significant issue to deal with over a long period. Paul, yeah, to come to you. Yeah, thank you. No, I was just going to say that, I mean, it sort of takes us back to the beginning, really, in the sense that... Lockdown works because of being so plus. And basically, you're in, it, in order to get that to work, you need to make people pretty fearful of COVID-19. And now, as we start to release people, as it were, um, am I still there? Because everyone's frozen on screen. I have the impression. Have I gone? Am I back? Yeah. Keep going. Keep plowing on. Back? Yeah, I thought I'd lost it. Every, everyone froze in beautiful... Harmony. Um, Again, we just want to get coffee, but we're back now. Yeah, I know. I think that was done on purpose as soon as I start speaking. So um, uh, we're now really, you know, basically going to have to present people with more accurate risk information. Um, And of course, there are spillover effects for their behaviours for other people's risks. And of course, that's really significant. Um, But, you know, by and large, younger people, you know, under 30, certainly under 40, um, face very, very small risks. 
um, from at least from the evidence that we have, that we have so far. So, kind of getting them from a state in which we've made them fearful and scared to a point at which their proportional responses to risk is going to be a difficult um, challenge. And one of the things that potentially can happen, I mean, if you think about, if we think the last big event that we thought was a really big event was when we voted to leave the EU in the UK, um, which we spent three years thinking about being the most important thing that could ever happen to us, whether we left or stayed. But actually before that Brexit vote, no one actually really cared about the EU. It was like number 14 of 17 on a list of things that people cared about. But afterwards, you had to take a stance. You had to either ardently say that we ought to leave or ardently say that we ought to stay. And you couldn't say something in between. And it's, and it's possible that our post-COVID-19 or actually during COVID-19, depending on how long it goes on before we find the vaccine response, will polarise too. Either you have to fall back into the way of where Nick really you know, kind of um, saw things at, at the start, was either this is the world on fire or it's really not much more than the flu, is it? And you're going to have to, you can't sort of have a more nuanced position. You're going to have to pick a side. Um, and I think that's going to be interesting for how we kind of manage that. No, interesting. Grace, yeah. Um, I just want to tie what Liam and Nick have said together, which I think is super important, is starting to think now about the restart so that we don't actually leave people behind who've, who, you know, who've, who've been furloughed for a long time, who are at risk of losing their jobs. So I know when the last, the third industrial revolution happened and when manufacturing was being hollowed out, there was a lot of talk that this is going to cause inequality. But I never really saw one paper about this is the strategy that we're going to try to make sure that people are going to left behind. And, and I think today there's a lot going on, but people are talking about education gaps. They're talking about, you know, um, people who are on lower socioeconomic background falling behind in school and falling behind in life, having to kind of curtail their consumption patterns and other folk are going to be winners. But I think having social scientists think about, okay, that might happen, but what are the strategies that we could put in place to ensure that, that, that it's not? In the same way that companies are thinking about their restart, we should think about restarting where, where, with, a, with a, a, a UK that's inclusive, actually. Yeah, now as we move forward. Ulrika? Um, yeah, I also want to tie together some a couple of things that have just been said. Uh, to me, it seems that the biggest behavioral challenge that we'll have going forward is a kind of meta challenge, which is, the uh, unfortunate continuation of trends that we already had, which we might have hoped would go away, which is the sort of fractionation and politicization um, that's fueled by selective information, but also targeted disinformation. That means that we we we're not just in the already discussed difficult situation where the same where where people look at the same set of facts but come to different conclusions, but we're also seeing societies now split into people who have widely divergent beliefs about supposedly underlying facts regarding COVID-19. And I think the thing that I find really concerning is that on top of all the behavioral challenges that have already been identified, we're going to have to do whatever we do and negotiate as a society in an environment there where a sizable proportion of people is going to believe radically different things about the very nature of the virus in the first place. Yeah, interesting. So something we, we, we definitely need to come back to there as we've seen the polarisation, as we said about other debates we hadn't really thought about in relation to Brexit, well, we have a polarisation between us, both the risk preferring and the risk averse. And, um, and how's that going to, how's that going to play out in the nature of the nature of risks and, and, and the unequal impacts, I suppose, of some of the policies 
Paul, I just want to turn to you to, to consider the last sort of panel question before I, I open it up and come to some of the Q&A elements. Um, we've touched on this in some of the discussions so far, but what are the main behaviours that you think will change as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the simple and short answer to that question through most of history would be nothing much. I mean, I think that most of the time when we're in a moment of crisis or an event or something that's kind of attention seeking, we imagine that this is life changing in some, in some way, either at a personal level or a societal level. And actually quickly things return to how they were because our memories are very short um, and um, past behaviors speak to future ones better than any intention to change does. So that would be the default position as an answer. Um, of course, a lot does depend on the uncertainty of how long we have to live with you know, COVID-19 and how embedded some of the behaviours that we're changing now become. And that's an impossible question to answer. Um, it speaks to Grace's earlier comment, anyone who says they're certain about anything should be listened to. So no one, no one can truly know. Um, I, there, there are some obvious things that I think will change. I mean, I'm just looking that we've got over 900 people at the moment on this call from around the world. These are public events that we would never have held like this before. Um, and that's a good thing. And so I think we're going to remember that, that, you know, memories will be a little longer um, for things like this. People work from home. Companies will realise that they don't have to spend a fortune on office space in very expensive cities. Um, and um, the spillover effects will be quite interesting because I think if you, if you look at the Spanish flu in 1918, we had the roaring 20s. There was a... There was a flu, wasn't there, epidemic in the late 50s. We had the swinging 60s. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to the 20s, the 2020s, being um, uh, a few years at least, if we can find a vaccine of, of, of fun um, and happiness and creativity um, and innovation as we kind of make up for lost time. Um, but again, to return to the kind of short answer, most things won't change very much. Um. Has anybody got any thoughts on that? So there's a kind of pitch there for most things won't change very much. Does anybody want to, to come back on that or to reflect on that? Liam? I think, I think it will depend yeah. to an extent upon uh, how these get hardwired into the physical environment. I mean, I think there is a window where people are very alert to issues like uh, congestion. They're very alert to issues like having a good environment for homework. Uh, and I think as things, I, I agree with Paul to the extent that I think we probably overestimate the extent to which that will last when things get back to normal. I mean, we're focused on it now, but but how it could last is if it leads to prompt action and sort of resetting of defaults. And we're seeing it, I mean, even in Dublin today, they're re, uh, reorientating the city centre to be more sort of cycle friendly and car friendly. You've seen other, uh, sorry, cycle friendly and walking friendly. And you've seen other cities do things like that. And that will have an interesting one because that's, that becomes the new default then. So it becomes harder to change it back. So to the extent that I see lasting behavioural change, it will be through things that we've done that got hardwired during a period where we needed to do it that then become hard to reverse uh, for, for good or for ill, rather than it being that we all have this personal change. That uh, And there may be an element of that. I mean, I, I can remember even people I knew when I grew up who remember tuberculosis and so on and were always very conscious about uh, different types of infection control and so on and so forth. So there might be an element of that. We get better at hand washing for the long term and so on. But but I think it will mostly come through changes in the environment, changes in the choice environment. Yeah. Um, Grace and then and then Nick. Yeah. 
Um, I think what would be fascinating to look at as a behavioral scientist is the role between fear and adaptation. So I expect once the fear goes, what will be left are changes that probably benefit somebody somewhere. So I think Paul mentioned, you know, building costs can go down. So it now makes sense for companies to really think about leaving their workers at home if they see no productivity decline. So you might imagine that sticking. But the idea that we will stay physically distanced from each other, I'm imagining will only stick once people are actually afraid of COVID. So that tracking that interaction, if anybody has good data, is really, really fascinating, actually. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Nick? Yeah, I'm, my um, point, I think very much, I mean, I very much agree with Paul's basic assumption that um, going back to normal is is the default option because you know, normal is something that's grown up over a long period of time because it sort of works. And if you disturb it, it tends to just go back to, to how it was before. But um, but the where, where there will be exception to that, I suppose, will be cases where we were going in a certain trajectory on a certain trajectory anyway. So with things like more remote working, more use of digital. Um, more use of um, you know, uh, electronic money rather than cash. All these things were happening anyhow. More use of home, home delivery for food. So it may be that there's a shock to the system which just changes a lot of people and company behavior in a way that they were kind of thinking, well, we were doing this in 10 years, but, well, we're doing it now and we have to do it now and they, they won't go back. And I, mean, that, that's, and I think the, Liam's suggestion about um, switching to larger levels of cycling and walking, that might be in the same category. I mean, probably most people have the long-term feeling that that's the way cities are going. So if, as a city planner, you see this short-term measure, are you going to think, well, let's rush back to the old way? Maybe you won't. But but I think that but the, those, and those will be important. But I, I think it's still the case that it's the idea that we're going to sort of come out as a fundamentally changed society on every dimension, I think is probably wrong. I think we will, we'll, you know, if, if we can get a vaccine and, and we are able to go back to something a bit like what we had before, we, we probably will. Um, one example of this, I think, in my own mind, is the um, astonishing recovery in terms of confidence in air travel after 9-11. Um, I mean, after 9-11, it just seemed, for people who lived through that as, uh, as adults, it was, as I suspect we all did, it just seemed inconceivable, really, that anyone wanted to get on a plane ever. It just seemed so, just so awful. Um, and yet, you know, um, but within a year or so, I presume passenger numbers were about the same as they were before. Um, so I think you know, it's really surprising uh, when, when you're when you're in a crisis, it's, it's hard to conceive of how it could possibly um, not be, well, how we can possibly feel differently from the, from the way we feel now. And that's just a normal thing. I mean, that really is one thing that behavioral scientists are always going on about, that uh, we're, we're locked into our current worldview, the state we're in now, conditions how we think about things. And, the, and it's very difficult to think, oh, yes, but actually if the state were a little different, I'd, you know, my, my viewpoint would shift. And it's you know, it will and we will find it absolutely fine to be packed into small spaces with other people, um, even though it seems very weird at the moment. Yeah. Ulrika, yes. Yeah, I, 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 it's possible that I'm, I'm the only person here who has divergent intuitions uh, on this question. And uh, I, I, the, the point is taken about the past being like the past. Um, but I've been thinking about this more from the perspective that what what's going on in the world is that we have these really complex systems economies cities on on every conceivable scale and they're all being completely massively jumbled all at once and and if i sort of think of that as a, from a sort of complex systems perspective it 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 doesn't strike me as terribly plausible that things are just going to go back to 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 the way they were um i i've i've more been thinking 
we don't really possess great tools for thinking about these kinds of questions because thinking about those kinds of systems uh, is difficult and is itself still an emerging science. But but I don't I don't share this intuition that it's going to be like this rubber band where except for a few exceptional things, everything's going to just sort of snap into place again. I want to pick up on, on I suppose, uh, some aspects of that. And we've got a lot of questions coming in now. If I turn to um, some of the questions that are coming in about what we can take from our current experience with respect to particularly climate change. So it's a really a really uh, an issue which is occupying a lot of the minds of a lot of our, our participants, at least those who are asking questions at the moment. And there's a bunch of issues coming up around that. One, I suppose, Nick, going to the, to the to, do we want to go back to uh, the old normal or do we want to double down on changes that were happening anyway and accelerate those? And obviously one of those is the acceleration towards low carbon net zero um, and the whole climate emergency agenda. So some of the questions are around, well, do we think, uh, and Liam, picking up your point about some of the structural changes that may take place during this period, um, do we see, an, does a panel, do you see an opportunity here for, um, perhaps an acceleration towards um, the net zero or something we can learn from the pandemic um, around the shift to net zero, but also around getting people to change their behaviour to be pro-climate. Is there anything we can learn from the heavy compliance that there has been? And Nick, you, you made this right in your opening comments about how quickly we changed our social contract, as it were, in terms of this very, very heavy um you know, willingness to have very heavy restrictions on our, our personal freedom of movement um, in the light of, of the pandemic. So is there anything we can learn from that people are asking in terms of how we can sort of accelerate the shift to net zero um, in sort of getting people to change their behaviours uh, in that pro-climate, pro-environmental way? Okay, if I if I can say a yeah. few words on that, so I, I and mean, I'm on the so I have a I should declare an interest here in that, in that I'm a member of the Committee on Climate Change, which is the body that um, was uh, instrumental in pushing for net zero. Um, so obviously I'm not an unbiased uh, entirely unbiased as I'm clearly speaking in a personal capacity. Um, so I think actually the the question of um, the framing of what the connection is between COVID and, and, and other risks, including clearly risks from climate change, is really, really important. Um, and I think the, the way I think is most appropriate to see it is to think that what we've seen is how um, the economy and, and society at large is, is not a closed system and can be knocked off course by unexpected shocks, in this case a pandemic, which completely um, throw, uh, uh, you know, throw out of balance our uh, our expectations about how the system should work. So you could imagine running your um, your political and economic life thinking, well, these viruses aren't very important. They're a marginal issue. We'll you know, leave them to the doctors. Just forget about them. Just you know, just um, you know, have as much in the way of open trade and open movement to people and so on as possible. And that, on the whole, might be quite a sensible thing to do, but occasionally you're going to come massively unstuck because you're going to get a virus which, which takes hold and derails you. Um, and that similar kind of intuition that the, we're not a closed system, I think is very important with climate change too, because it's very easy to get stuck in a mentality of thinking, well, the economy has to um, work in these particular ways and there's no real way of, um, we, we, we'll just slow it down if we, um, if, if we, if we take, make too, have too many regulatory changes and then getting you know, potentially completely clobbered by um, the really potentially very substantial and pretty, pretty irreversible impacts of 
of large scale climate change, which will have you know, fairly dire effects uh, on scale, like what we have at the moment, but obviously over a much longer period, essentially indefinitely. So I think that, that I mean, the key metaphor in my mind, I, as, you, as I started out, I'm very keen on metaphors as the, the ways we think, um, is it's, it's as a metaphor of, of, of resilience. It's like being able to deal with unexpected crises, which can come from anywhere and are not necessarily within our full, full understanding. So it seems to me that we are, um, I mean, one lesson from this experience is that we have to be aware, alert to big, unexpected um, and unconventional threats. And, and we need to design the way we, we, we organize our lives in a way that's, that's, that's going to be able to cope with those um, as best as we possibly can. Um, I, I also think there's a there's a sort of small smaller more narrow point, which is a sort of build back better point, um, which is that if you're going to reinvest, um, you may as well think about the, the the investments which are going to be a good bet in the future. So forgetting about the, the climate impact, if you just take it for granted that the UK is on a net zero trajectory, it would be a mistake to to, to not take that into account when you're thinking uh, how you're going to to channel um, public and private investment in, in, the, uh, in the recovery period. Absolutely. Does anybody else have any, have any, have any thoughts on, on this issue? Because I know it's occupying a fair amount of thinking at the moment. Paul? Um, yeah, I'm just going to make a comment about the salience of mortality risks, because um, it's become incredibly salient over the last couple of months. We're getting daily updates of number of people dying from COVID-19 of course rarely is that ever placed in the context of the deaths that would otherwise occur and that are occurring anyway every day I mean I actually learned two two months ago for the first time that 1600 people die every day in the UK roughly that was something that I hadn't known until then um, and deaths from climate change are what estimated about 100 per day before lockdown um, maybe there's something I mean there are huge disadvantages which we may come to about trade-offs uh, shortly about presenting mortality risks alone but there may be something that could galvanize interest in the deaths from climate change um because of course one of the things that you know we we all know very well is one of the reasons why we've there's, there's a number of reasons why we've cared less about it than we ought to have done perhaps but but one of the reasons is because there it's all about the future um and not about now and of course climate change kills people now uh and so so that might be be one way in which we can bring the um costs of the climate change to our you know, sort of current attention. No, and certainly bringing forward that impact, that has obviously obviously been one of the major challenges for, for climate change, for those who are seeking to get people to change their behaviour to be pro-climate, is, is the risks are always elsewhere and being felt elsewhere, away from us, and both geographically and, and temporally uh, in time. But I think one of the things um, that is also, that people are also... Uh, thinking about and Paul to, to you just touched on it just there are the trade-offs because obviously we get that in the climate space we're getting that very uh starkly now and there have been quite a lot of questions both um coming in on on this panel but in the public discourse more generally about how do you make those calculations as it were in relation to how much do you what's your economic cost as it were to save a life and obviously there are lots of Lots of different ways of, of calculating the, the value of life. and um, But really, how should we be thinking about that, particularly as we start to move into the kind of the, uh, the, the, the sort of release phase, but also thinking around the world that these economic impacts um, are being very differently felt. We're not all in it together, not even within the UK. Um, and certainly if we think 
you know, different countries around the world have a much greater or lesser ability to cope with these economic shocks and even to enforce social distancing. Um, so how should we be thinking about those trade-offs, as it were? Or should we even be thinking about them in terms of trade-offs? Uh, okay, Paul and then Grace, and, and then the others just, just wave at me if you want to come in. Yeah, I won't. So there is, there, I mean, we could spend quite some time talking about how we value life and the ways in which we might use that to inform policy decisions. I don't, I mean, unless, unless you want me to come back to say more about that, I, I can, but I won't for now. But what I will, but what I will do is make the general point about it. There's a miss. There seems to me to have been a missing conversation um, in this kind of contrast that people have made between health and wealth, which by the way, is completely absurd. Um, I think we'll all agree that there is, you know, that, that actually it's not lives versus livelihoods, it's lives versus lives and also lively, livelihoods. I mean, there are clearly going to be many health impacts, including mortality risks from policy measures put in place to deal with COVID-19. And so they need to be appropriately weighed against one another, not to say that what we did is wrong, although it might have been, but we don't know because we haven't properly assessed those costs and benefits, which is why welfare economists, I think, need to be playing much more central role in the conversations about how we respond to COVID-19. But the bit that's missing are the contemporaneous costs that are being borne right now in terms of loneliness, mental health, child abuse, you know, domestic abuse, all these things that actually are, when we're presenting mortality risks, um, which, by the way, are very uncertain, of course, even the epidemiologists would accept that the, what, what, we, what we know about you know, COVID-19 COVID and, its, and its impact is still very uncertain. It's every bit as uncertain what effects are taking place on people right now as we have this conversation. Um, yet they are, to some very large extent, every bit as quantifiable. Um, and, and I would, I think many of us would agree that we would like to see that information presented alongside mortality risks so that we can make a better informed judgment. And so that, you know, to go back to an earlier point I made, that we can have a proper conversation with adults about trade-offs. Because I think that's, that's, that's the way um, that we are going to remain engaged, that we're going to keep people fully engaged with what we're doing, is by having a grown-up conversation about those kinds of trade-offs. Yeah. So I, I, could, I, I would like to go on at length, but I, I will... Um, rain well, myself in yeah. at that point. We'll have another session on that, don't worry. We've probably got one coming up anyway. Um, Grace, I think you wanted to come in. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if we if we really kind of got down to it, the type of trade-offs that are being made across countries might actually explain some of the differential policy responses. And I think what we're not really clear about at the moment is what is and what is not being taken into account. And I think you can have a guess if you look at the collection of people around SAGE, the type of things that might be brought up. But if you were to do this properly, you would think about all the costs and benefits that go with what is actually happening today. And it might be the policymakers say it's too complicated to consider that people are unhappy at home right now. We really do just want to talk about jobs and deaths. And they're the only two things that we're taking into account. But I think that decision... It, making it transparent makes it much easier to have conversations about it and challenge it. And I think that's the step that's missing. We don't know what's on the table, what's being struck off, or what's actually, you know, a blind eye is being turned to. So, so, so that's why I think we want more experts around the table. Yeah. Any other thoughts from anybody just on the panel on, on this one? Nick, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I think this, this question of trade-offs, I think the very much uh, how you see it, the very much depends on what metaphor you have in mind. So if it's the case that you think it's like your house is on fire, um, then there's no real issue about uh, trade-offs because you think, well, we've really just got to put the fire out. That's because anything else you care about is going to be obliterated by this, this fire. Now, that may not be the right way to see the COVID, but if one thinks that's the case, you just let the thing run, you're going to have an awful lot of ill people. The health service will totally break. Um, I don't know what the don't know what the end game is if if, if the health service is overrun to the, to a tremendous degree permanently. But it's pretty bad. Um, but if you think that's the story, whether it's yeah. his or not, whether you, if you think that's the story, then you don't have a in terms of immediate crisis management. You don't have a huge trade-off issue because you you think well everything's blown up if we don't fix this problem. So we've just got to fix this problem, and that requires some drastic action. Now, I think as you come out, even if you take that view, that that sort of have that metaphor in mind, as you come out of lockdown, though, trade-offs become really material because you can, uh, you know, it may or may not be the case that the best thing to do is to have the most drastic possible lockdown, keep R as low as possible, um, and then come out of it. Or um, that that might be the right thing to do, but that will have, you know, fairly massive economic consequences. Is it better economically and, in fact, in health terms? To have a more graded, have be a less aggressive, and come out in a more graded fashion. You know, then it's really, it's just really not obvious. Um, so I think that's a really that, that becomes much more, of a, you know, key question, whatever your view is. But I think there was at least at the beginning of the of the question of when there was a question of whether we should be taking action or drastic action at all. I think there was a, a kind of slightly too simple um, lives versus. Um, uh, livelihoods kind of que- uh, discussion which doesn't take account of the fact that if we're dealing with a burning house that's not the right way to think about it so i think again it goes back to this question of if, which, which how you frame how you see the problem how you conceive of it just makes such a difference to what where the trade-offs are and whether you have to worry about them yeah well rika i see you wanted to you had some thoughts yeah, I think, I, I think I'm probably now just saying the same things that people have already said in different language, which is that um, it, it's, not, it's not clear to me that this is just about uh, our willingness to quantify uh, certain things, but, but, but also it's going to require, crucially, um, knowledge of relevant counterfactuals, which we're just not going to have, right? Like the, the discussion about, you know, the economy versus lives in its most simplistic form seemed to assume some sort of model where economic activity just continues unperturbed, even though, in Bill Gates's words, you know, the bodies are piling up, which of course seems really extremely unlikely. So it's, it's not clear to me that for, for a lot of these costs, that even if we sit down to try to quantify them, we can do a particularly good job of quantifying them because we just don't simply know, we simply don't know what the, what the relevant counterfactuals are. Yeah. yeah, we come back to uncertainty as, as well again, don't we? Liam, did you want to come in or are you? Um, I think that's the bit that makes me lose sleep in the sense that you, you are seeing a, a, a youth unemployment issue uh, that's going to be unlike you know anything we've seen and if you did have a model of a counterfactual where where you could time release and we've seen attempts to do this I mean Andrew Oswald and Nick Powdervy had a very interesting paper but the problem with it is we don't know what the networked behavior of younger folks coming back into the labor market would be on the path of the virus and then what that would imply for the path of future lockdowns economic confidence and so on and so forth. So when we try to make a trade-off between the risk, you might make an argument the risk that an individual young person living isolated would face 
from long-term unemployment versus the virus would imply, you know, you'd be more willing to ask them to go to work or, or open up conditions for them to go to work. But if you don't know what's actually going to happen to the aggregate behaviour of the virus because of that, I think we haven't, we, we, I mean, it, it comes up the limits of human knowledge, really. We don't, we actually don't know at the moment how to factor those. Uh, and again, people like Paul have made strong attempts to show how that modelling exercise would work, but but uh, but it, it, we haven't yet seen a model that could take into account those counterfactuals um, and, and, and quantify well-being effects in the course of doing that. And it's more than that, Liam, isn't it? Because we don't know what the demand erosion has been yet when we open up society, as Larika said. So the yeah. idea that we can just open the doors and the jobs that were once there are going to be ready for people, we, we have uncertainty over that as well. So we have kind of on the two sides, even if the government decided today we all go back to work, that, you know, demand has eroded. There's Jobs have gone missing. So that, that, that part um, needs to be thought about as well. Can I, can I ask a question? Can I ask a question? Uh, possibly. Yeah, no, go for it. Of course you can. Of course you can. I wanted they to don't have to answer it, but you can ask. No, I wanted to ask Grace because it follows up from, from what she just said about the jobs missing, missing jobs. Because every economic downturn, as I understand it, then it, eventually the jobs are created and there's more afterwards. But are we going to be in a position, do you think, I mean, of course, this is a world of uncertainty, where those jobs will be genuinely lost? I, I mean, this kind of this. this I mean, the the the, lo- the short answer is I don't know, but I will make two points. I mean, you know, it is true that most recessions historically have had jobless recoveries pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so you know, kind of five quarters, we've ended up back in the situation that we were before. But I think this is truly an unusual um, event in that it looks like firms have actually gone under. So we've seen many more firms filing for administration, many more firms going into liquidation. And assuming that they don't survive and aren't replaced, you know, what we could be witnessing is creative destruction that takes a long time to come about. So I don't think we've had demand erosion in the economy like we've had today. We've, we've basically seen global markets go away. And the UK's decision to send people back to work is also reliant on other countries because a lot of our markets are global for many of the services that we push out there into the world. So I think that there'll be a longer recovery, but like you, we'll get back to normal. But if I was to place a bet, I think it would be longer than the GFC. Okay, so just, um, just thinking about picking up on that, um, but a couple of question is really coming in around compliance and compliance fatigue and I suppose some of these different trade-offs that people will have to make themselves so um, and we've seen in different countries that um, the way in um, some of the the rules have been imposed either feel unequal so some countries have said that women are allowed outdoors on some days and men on others which means the queue for the shops are really long on the days that the women are allowed outdoors and really short on the day that men go outdoors um, and so there's resentment about those kind of the way that they're designed. We've also seen, obviously, in different countries that it's just impossible to comply. So you can't stay at home because you need to go outside to get water. You need to go and get food. You need to you don't there is no welfare system that's providing you with a furlough scheme. And so people are having to make their own decisions around compliance. But also even in developed countries where you have those systems that, you know, the sense of how long can we keep going? And obviously that informed the UK's policy early on, uh, quickly discarded, but still seems to be informing Sweden's policy to an extent. So so how should we, and returning to our theme about uncertainty, how should people be thinking about those decisions for themselves? Because they are, 
in a way, at a very individual level, a reflection of the debate we've just been having about the policymakers at the macro level having to decide? How could people be navigating through those really complicated issues? I mean, in terms of the issue um, of, of behavioural fatigue, and it became a very controversial topic, um, I mean, it has a number of different dimensions. So one would be just the dimension that people's behaviour would start wearing off. And another one was, another version of it is that having done this once, if we have to do it again, we may be less likely uh, to do it. But I mean, it's not at all apparent that that's clear um, in the sense that we've, over the last few months, we've all learned a lot of stuff. I mean, and you can remember how nervous it was at the start, whereas we, we've learned how to do this. We've learned a lot of behaviours. So while they, while you might expect some fall off, not necessarily because of fatigue, but rather because if the virus starts to diminish and you start, your risk perceptions go down. And we are seeing that to an extent in Ireland right now. People are less afraid of the virus than they were a few months ago. So that might see some of the behaviours diminishing. Uh, but also people have learned how to do a lot of this type of stuff. Like you will not go and shake somebody's hand in Ireland now, or in the UK for that matter. Uh, you won't walk close to people. Like people have hardwired these habits in a way. So having had an early lockdown, while you might think it could lead to behavioural fatigue, it could also lead to the fact that if we have to do less restrictive versions of the lockdown, we now know how to do it. More of us know how to work from home. So I don't take back any of the other points I made earlier about people who have particular risks working in areas where it's going to be hard for them to isolate and having particular economic risks, we should be putting a lot of resources on that and that should inform the test and trace and isolate strategy. I think if you could get all of those right, give us a, it would give us a good chance. And I don't think in, if you had all of those, then I don't think people just simply getting bored would be a big factor um, compared to these other factors. Yeah. Ulrika? Uh, I think there's there's one compliance issue that that uh, I was struck by as something I'd completely overlooked that uh, was prompted by me reading an article last week, which were stories of people who'd survived COVID-19. And, and what it made me realize, of course, is that people who now know they are immune, potentially, of course, continue, have to continue to enact these social norms, mm. which, which for them and the people around them are effectively pointless. But because mm. they're social norms and because other people don't know that you're in this category, you're going to have to continue to behave in this particular way, even though this has kind of no immediate benefit for you and actually as a behavior yeah. makes sense only on that aggregate level. And of course, the proportion of people who will have had COVID-19 will over time invariably go up. So I think one of the things that we're also going to see is a sort of tension between these, these, uh, these evolving norms and the extent to which it will be possible to sustain them by people for which these norms are now completely pointless. Yes, and then we have a, a tension, I suppose, between what's motivating compliance. Is it your rational self-interest in, in staying healthy and not infecting your loved ones? But if you know, or is it the social norms uh, around you? And, and, and we might start to see that play out a little bit more, I suppose. Um, anybody else, other thoughts on, on this issue of ongoing compliance? Yes, Paul. I just want to say just one thing on the sustainability of pro-social behaviours. I'm, I'm pessimistic about that if they're framed only as pro-social behaviours. Um, I, think, I think that most human action and the feedback that we get from our behaviours that help other people are that they make us feel good about ourselves too. Um, either we get recognition extrinsically or internally um, from our pro-sociality. So, so insofar as we, we will continue to be motivated by helping others, there needs to be some feedback that this makes us feel good about ourselves because otherwise that will quickly disintegrate, I think. 
any other any other thoughts on on that subject? So I'm just scanning down some of the um, questions which we've we've had come in, and as well as the um, those that we've been looking at, we've got quite a few people who are asking actually returning to behavioural sciences itself. Um, and I mentioned one before, given the problems behavioural sciences have faced in terms of reproducibility and replicability, how cautious should the community be in offering solutions or policymakers of um, taking them up? And others asking about whether this is really the time for behavioural sciences to break through, as it were, in, in policy impact and influence, um, or will the perceived failures, um, perhaps even around uh, the UK's kind of current responses, lead to the perception of behavioural sciences as um, you know, snake oil rather than panacea, et cetera. So, so just last thoughts on, on the role of behavioural sciences itself in policy. Being lots of hands waving around. Okay, I'm going to, going to go in reverse order of them flashing up on my screen. So Nick, then Grace, then Liam, and then I'm sure the other two will pile in if, if needed. Nick. Yeah, so, so my, I mean, I, I think the, you know, the, the, the truth is that behavioural science has, I mean, it certainly has its, 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 its problems with replicability and reproducibility, as, as medical science does, as, as science does in general. Um, but the real problem it has is that the most of the, the work we do is incredibly narrow. So all the lab-based work we do is done under extremely narrow circumstances or uh, internet-based um, studies, which are very, very far away from the kind of um, rich, complicated um, scenarios we're dealing with when we're worrying about how to reshape our behaviour in, in, in the context of a pandemic. So the idea that we can... Um, we have a kind of a set of general principles of how the mind works, which is just so reliable and being built up by such a, a, a completely rigorous set of cunning behavioural economic and psychological experiments that we can just uh, stamp them out with great certainty in this new situation. I think that's completely wrong. Um, so going back to rather echoing one of the points that was made earlier, you know, any, any behavioural scientist who says, well, luckily I'm a behavioural scientist, so I can absolutely tell you what people are going to do, should be distrusted greatly, because we simply, we're continually being surprised, even in the experiments we do. Right? We're continually getting results we don't expect. So if you look at the real world, you're going to get even more surprises. Um, I think what behavioural scientists can do is they can help you with a more scenario planning type of enterprise, where they, they can say, well, this might be an important factor, and this might have a nasty rebound effect, and we should definitely check for that. And so that, 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 that may be helpful. And also, I think there's, there's, despite all the methodological challenges we have, there is also the methodology, um, which comes both from economics and um, experimental psychology and other areas as well, of just trying to systematically understand a complicated, evolving process in, a, in as best way we can, um, in a way that it may be helpful. But um, So I think yeah, we, we have something... As a discipline, we have quite a lot to offer, but we don't have any answers. And we certainly don't have any answers on our own um, because any policy issue is inherently, um, it, you know, it has to be resolved on the basis of all the constraints that are relevant. And those constraints go far beyond behaviour to you know, politics and law and economics and many others. Yeah. Grace. Yes, I mean, Nick has said a lot of what I wanted to say. I mean, behavioural science, there's distribution of quality. Um, and I think that the best studies are the ones that are done in the real world where people really think about causality and really think about adaptation. I don't worry as much about other people about reproducibility because context does matter. So you would expect things to change depending on the context. But I do get annoyed when um, people make claims outside the bounds of their study. And I think we need to be careful of that. But just to reiterate what Nick said, I see behavioral scientists as people 
who will help in scenario planning alongside other disciplines. Um, when we think about assessing the costs and benefits, any scenario that the government come up with um, is dependent on people acting in the way that they want them to act. And I think behavioral scientists have a lot of, of you know, um, good insights to give in, in that regard. And also in the act of storytelling, because I think when Nick told that beautiful story about your house being on fire, it was very nice and it got me to zone in on the people who are dying because of COVID, but actually lots of other things are happening, you know, at the same time. So I think what behavioral scientists can do is bridge scenario planning with storytelling, which the second we absolutely need if you want to get people to go in the direction that the government want them to go in. Excellent. Liam? Yeah, I mean, so there was a debate, a debate around behavioural science, which, uh, as I said, I was working on the Irish response and looking at what SAGE were doing, and I, I almost felt there was a parallel discussion happening in the media and online about what what people working in those contexts are actually doing, which isn't taking, you know, a fixed body of literature and sort of opining on it into a situation, but it's rather they're gathering data in real time and using theory to sort of generate a set of potential outcomes that they're then looking at and updating as, as, as things go. So I think the idea of a behavioral scientist is being part of an interdisciplinary team and I think I, when I looked at the folks on SAGE I thought like that's they are the people I would want there in terms of you had people specializing in rapid studies you had people <sighs> psychology social psychology maybe as Grace said you might have had a couple of economists but it was still a very strongly put together team I had a similar experience in Ireland where it was a group of people that were gathering data in real time quite careful how to interpret it aware of its limitations and in some sense the the, the the sort of stereotype that was coming through some of the debates about behavior science was that we were overconfident whereas i just didn't experience that i mean i saw people that were just constantly aware of the limitations of this data and that was almost part of your function was to present this sort of data in a way that you would you would not have it overused and i think we need to do a job of if any of our students are, are listening and so on and so forth of 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 um pushing back maybe against uh, some of the some of the criticism that came in because I'm not sure how much of it was founded to be honest in what was actually happening mm-hmm. in these areas. Arika, you addressed some of these issues at the beginning. Do you have yeah, any? I, I, mean, I, I think just to kind of amplify that, I, I like the, the 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 direction of where these points have been going. I mean, there's there's always this contrast, right, between sort of thinking of science as a process and and thinking of science as a product. And I think. Um, you know, something like the replicability crisis, of course, addresses multiple points, but but I think it's most powerful if we're sort of thinking that behavioral science is about people going off and now in this crisis too doing their new study, which they can just, which will end up in this parcel of knowledge we can just sort of hand over to somebody else having distilled it in, into this packet, as opposed to sort of thinking that uh what we as behavioral scientists have is is a broad range of skills and experience for thinking about and trying to understand human behavior that can be brought to bear and should be brought to bear on a, on a problem like this. And, and I think there probably would be mileage with respect to uh, a wider community response. If, if people potentially thought a little bit more about uh, their skills and expertise, and maybe a little bit less about the definitive study that's going to try to clarify, you know, question X, Y, or Z. Thanks, Paul, last thoughts to you. Yeah, just, I mean, I suppose it's emphasis of the welfare economist's role in the um, contribution towards this discussion. Um, I think both for research and policy, this has reminded me of adversarial collaboration much more, mm. I think. I mean, it speaks... It speaks a lot to the points that everybody's made, particularly 
or Rika with kind of we can all see the same facts differently and then now we're going to start seeing facts and non-facts differently um that I think we should be explicitly bringing together people who disagree um I think that's a I think we 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 haven't done as much of that as we ought to have done in academic research and I think it now has become even more important and timely in the presence of COVID-19 so I'd like to have lots of arguments with lots of people that disagree with me and, and having people say that they're wrong. I would like to see more of that. People say, I got it wrong. I agree with A, B, and C. Changing their minds, I think, is the, yeah. it's the time for that. Yes, and tolerance of people changing their minds. I think that's one of the things that's also as well in relation to public communications, isn't it? How to um, explain to people that you're, you're changing your mind without being entirely discredited. Um, you know, people want that, that certainty, don't they, from... Uh, it's seen as a weakness, but I actually, I mean, in this response, when there's uncertainty, it is a strength for people to change their mind and say, actually, that was the wrong call. We're going to, we're going to go a different way. So it, it's excellent. Awesome. Okay, so I think we've, I mean, we've had an incredibly rich discussion. Thank you so much to our panelists. Uh, we've, I know, we've really just scratched the surface on some of these issues. Thank you so much, also, to the participants. Uh, we've had oodles of questions coming in. My apologies for not reading out your name against each question. There were so many of them, I just tried to bundle them together in themes. And also there were some raised hands, but I'm afraid I couldn't take those. So next time, if you are tuning in, please just type your question. Um, it's been a great pleasure to have you all with us. And thank you once again to my panelists. Thank you very much, everybody. And goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, thank you everybody for joining us. Bye. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you.